Well, it certainly caught everyone by surprise when the story broke. And what the Financial Times report suggested was that in mid-August, Chinese People's Liberation Army rocket forces uh, tested a fractional orbital bombardment system, or FOBS, which essentially is a, a, a missile uh, that can fly, rather than flying over the North Pole to deliver a nuclear warhead against the United States, it flies over the South Pole. It goes into orbit uh, and basically can either orbit the Earth or do a partial orbit, hence it allows it to have much greater range. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This week has been a roller coaster ride that keeps on rolling off the tracks. The top story in space, business, and defense actually broke last Saturday, October 16th, when the London-based Financial Times published a story that claimed China had tested a new type of hypersonic weapon. In the original story, the reporters claimed that five separate sources told them that in August, China launched a Long March 2C rocket that carried into orbit a hypersonic glide vehicle, that this particular vehicle was designed to deliver a nuclear warhead. What's more, the FT sources say this alleged development caught the U.S. intelligence community by surprise. Now, if true, the development of such a delivery system would be a huge leap forward in China's technical abilities. China's official response to the story was to say, yes, there was a test. It was of a reusable space plane in July. The problem is, that's not the launch the FT claims to have written about. And on Friday, another Chinese government spokesman did nothing to clarify. The U.S. Department of Defense has, so far, remained mum on the subject. This story is the focus of this episode. But before we dive in, here are other top stories from this week. Chief of U.S. Space Operations General John J. Raymond on Monday addressed the Republic of Korea Air Force's 22nd International Aerospace Symposium. It was a video message, and in it he told the audience that under an agreement between himself and the Republic of Korea Air Force Chief of Staff, General Park In-ho, that airmen from the East Asian country would soon be training and wargaming with the U.S. Space Force. General Raymond also said the U.S.-Korean alliance slogan, Kachi Kapshida, which in Korean means, we go together. General Park opened South Korea's Space Operations Center two weeks ago on October 4th. In Washington, D.C., Colorado Senator Mike Bennett and Representative Jason Crow are impatient for information on how the decision to relocate U.S. Space Command from Colorado Springs, Colorado to Huntsville, Alabama was made. Essentially, the entire Colorado congressional delegation alleges that the decision taken during the Trump administration was politically motivated. Colorado voters rejected former U.S. President Donald Trump's re-election bid, while Alabama voters supported him in the 2020 general election. 
Bennett and Crow told reporters that they hope the Government Accountability Office and the U.S. Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General would speed up their review processes so that if procedures were not followed, the basing decision process could be restarted sooner rather than later and from scratch. U.S. Space Command is currently headquartered at Peterson Space Force Base. If the relocation goes forward, the command would move by 2026. And finally, everyone agrees with the U.S. Space Force that there is a growing orbital debris problem, one that could negatively affect the space operations of every spacefaring nation. The challenge on Earth, according to a white paper released by Avacent, is that without governments reaching agreements with space debris removal startups, in the same manner as, say, SpaceX has received for developing rockets for U.S. Space Force uses, venture capital is going to invest in other technologies. That means the current junk conundrum not only stays in orbit, but it's only going to get worse. Now back to our top story. What did China actually launch? There's not a whole lot that is actually clear. What has been reported as of recording is that, yes, China announced on July 16th that it did launch a suborbital space plane. That vehicle went up on a long march to sea on launch number 77. And remember that number, because it's really where the unanswered questions start. In August, the China Academy of Launch Vehicle Technology, which makes rocket announcements, said a Long March 2C launched in late August. That launch was number 79. The problem is, where did launch 78 go? The Academy never announced it but rather skipped a number. And in both appearances by different Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokespeople, they didn't directly address the missing launch, launch number 78. The FT reporters claim that the hypersonic glide vehicle went up on launch number 78, but that in the original story, they had the month wrong. That in fact, the missing launch number 78 blasted off with its test weapon in late July. Now, no government with eyes on this, like China or the U.S. or France or anyone, has really revealed what they know. So I reached out to Malcolm Davis, an Australian space and defense expert. Hi, I'm Dr. Malcolm Davis. I'm a senior analyst in defense strategy and capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE in Canberra. And I work on essentially the broad, broad area of future military technology, uh, um, ASPE's lead on space policy and space security, uh, as well as doing issues such as future air power and the broader geopolitical um, you know, sort of issues of major power relations in the Indo-Pacific region. You are uh, perfectly positioned uh, to speak with us today about space, very particularly because you are in Australia, therefore a neighbor of China. And as you know, um, there's been a bit of a mystery this week. I'm wanting to know, what are you hearing? Was this mysterious test a space plane or a hypersonic glide vehicle capable of carrying a nuclear or conventional warhead? And if you could also explain to us, what is a fractional orbital bombardment system or FOB? Well, it certainly caught everyone by surprise when the story broke. And what the Financial Times report suggested was that in mid-August, Chinese People's Liberation Army rocket forces 
tested a fractional orbital bombardment system or FOBS, which essentially is a, a, a missile uh, that can fly, rather than flying over the North Pole to deliver a nuclear warhead against the United States, it flies over the South Pole. It goes into orbit uh, and basically can either orbit the Earth or uh, do a partial orbit. Hence, it allows it to have much greater range. And this allows it to attack targets from the south, circumventing US national missile defenses that are all aligned to the north to defend against attacks by North Korea. So this was something entirely uh, unexpected. A lot of the analysis said, oh, FOBS is nothing new. The the Soviets tried that in the 50s and the 60s. We discounted it. But what's new about this system is that it combined FOBS with a hypersonic glide vehicle as the payload. A hypersonic glide vehicle basically is, is a small glider, if you like, that travels at hypersonic velocities uh, five times or greater than the speed of sound. And what it does is it gives a missile much greater flexibility in terms of striking a target because the hypersonic glide vehicle has a great deal of maneuverability once it's released compared to a, uh, a missile warhead, the sort that you normally see on an ICBM. So what this means is the Chinese have tested essentially a FOBS-type delivery system that can deliver a hypersonic glide vehicle, which could carry a nuclear warhead, and it dramatically complicates the ability of the US to defend against a ballistic missile attack. The key thing to remember, of course, is that US national missile defense is very small, very limited. It's not very effective. And so there's now going to be a scramble in the US to how to respond to this challenge, uh, recognizing that if the Chinese go ahead and deploy this thing operationally, then the US is vulnerable uh, to strikes from over the South Pole in essentially an undefended airspace. What is the Australian reaction? What does this all mean in the context of rising tensions in the Indo-Pacific? How does this fit into the bigger picture? I mean, is this all really about Taiwan or is it about more than that? Look, the interesting thing was that I don't think a lot of Australians really woke up to the significance of it. Certainly in the defence and strategic policy community, we're all aware of it and we're all talking about it. Uh, But the broader community, no, there's, as we have a saying down here, it's crickets. What the discussion now is occurring is within the strategic policy community is what this means more broadly for China's intentions And I think that there is sort of concern that what this has to be taken alongside the discovery of large numbers of ICBM silos being built uh, in Xinjiang uh, earlier in the year. And the suggestion is that the Chinese are moving away from their minimum nuclear deterrent posture. Maybe they're moving away from their no first use posture towards having something that's more threatening at the nuclear level. And I don't think that necessarily implies that the Chinese are planning a bolt out of the blue attack on the United States. What it does mean is they're going to use an expanded and more capable nuclear deterrent capability to as a nuclear shield behind which they can use their conventional capability to undertake military operations such as an attack on Taiwan. And so that has to be the concern is that by expanding their nuclear forces in this way, Uh, and holding the US at greater risk through the prospect of nuclear retaliation. The Chinese have greater freedom below the nuclear threshold to undertake military operations in the near future, including Taiwan. And that obviously has implications for Australia as a key US ally uh, and the potential for a major power war in the Indo-Pacific region in this decade. 
Now, you know that China denies that it launched a hypersonic glide vehicle capable of carrying a warhead, and that statement doesn't really feel very satisfying, does it? What should be done or steps taken to perhaps take the drama out of this possible development? Yeah, look, the Chinese are claiming it was a space plane test, and they do have a small suborbital space plane uh, or orbital space plane test vehicle, which they're currently developing that could lead to a larger vehicle down the track called Chenghyun. But that test occurred in mid-July. The evidence is now that there were two tests in mid-August with this FOBS HTV hypersonic glide vehicle system. So the time the Chinese claim that this was a space plane test, I think, is obfuscating the, tr- the truth. I think that what they're trying to do is divert attention from this test. It was very interesting that the launch of this Long March 2C rocket carrying this FOBS hypersonic glide vehicle was not announced previously, you know, prior to the launch, uh, which is normal practice. And so now I think that the Chinese, you know, are basically trying to divert attention away from that. I think in terms of, of how we respond to Chinese actions will, will largely depend on what China does in coming months. It appears that they're determined to press ahead with you know, the sort of aggressive, what we call a wolf warrior type posture uh, in diplomacy and you know, aggressive patrolling uh, into the Taiwanese air defense identification zone by the PLA Air Force. And now you've got this missile test, which adds fuel to the fire. And so it does raise questions about what China's intentions are. Do they have an intent to actually move against Taiwan in this decade? And if so, how can we respond to that? The Australians just recently signed the AUKUS agreement with the US and the UK. That is primarily a response to China's growing military power and its increasingly assertive posture in the region. So I do think that we'll try our best to avoid adding fuel to the fire. And I don't see us as having done that in the past. But it really does depend on what China's actions and words are in the coming months uh, in terms of how it might intensify tensions going forward. Do you think that there there should be some sort of norms that might be able to to take, you know, again, some of this drama out of these types of tests or some sort of way to to pressurize China into at least being a bit more transparent about what they're doing? Yes, in the sense that what is needed is some sort of arms control measures or confidence building measures to manage what is essentially a new military technology. Uh, that yeah, potentially can be quite destabilizing. Um, you know, hypersonic weapons, whether they're uh, endo-atmospheric, in other words, like hypersonic cruise missiles or hypersonic glide vehicles that, that basically move along the top of the atmosphere, are all potentially destabilizing because the speed that they travel, they compress decision time down to a bare minimum. You know, a hypersonic cruise missile launched against a group of ships means that the ships have virtually no chance to defend against it. So testing these sorts of capabilities really adds to the, the risk of misperception, misunderstanding on the world stage and some sort of transparency uh, in terms of announcing tests, maybe sort of some sort of ability to monitor tests would be worthwhile doing. But it's a case of whether the Chinese are prepared to play ball and for that so for the Russians as well, because the Russians are developing hypersonic weapons too. And it's important to note here that the Russians and the Chinese are both well ahead of the US in hypersonic weapons technology. So that's some of the view from Down Under. 
But like a lot of mysteries, even among friends playing Clue, not everyone is going to agree that it was Colonel Mustard with a hypersonic revolver shooting up above the South China Sea. And to be fair, there's plenty of debate in the United States over just what was launch number 78. For another expert theory, I caught up with Todd Harrison from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hi, Laura. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I wonder that myself, what exactly is my job? Um, but at least my title at CSIS is I'm Senior Fellow uh, and I'm Director of our Aerospace Security Project and our Defense Budget Analysis Program. So uh, what that means is that my research areas uh, include uh, space security and all things space related, uh, as well as air power issues and defense budget issues. So I'm um, happy to be here and happy to talk about some of the interesting things that have been going on in space recently. So, Todd, perhaps we should start by rolling this back a bit. And can you explain the original allegation and then give us your thoughts on its actual veracity? Yeah. So, you know, the truth is at this point, we don't know enough to know for sure if anything happened uh, or if, you know, there is really something to be concerned about. Uh, so first of all, this is leaked information. Uh, apparently, the Financial Times got it from multiple sources. All of those sources may have gotten it from one source, though. I have seen that happen before <laughs> when things get leaked to the press and you see it reported, you know, five anonymous sources. Uh, they actually all got it from the same person. So who knows? Um, and there's not a lot of detail with the report. Uh, it talked, and you know, another thing I've learned in, in Washington is never rely on oral information. Uh, when people are saying things verbally, they often misstate or fail to include caveats, uh, especially true with defense budget information. But that could be a factor in this, that someone said, oh, it went into space, but what they meant is it went to an altitude above 100 kilometers. Uh, and then re-entered, which would be fully consistent with a hypersonic glide vehicle. But, you know, in the space community, went into space uh, more often means that it went into orbit. Uh, so if it actually did a full lap around the Earth, that is not consistent with a hypersonic glide vehicle and how you would employ that or test it. Um, because why would you take an extra lap around the earth, you know, another 24,000 something miles uh, and at least 90 minutes of flight time when the whole point of a hypersonic weapon uh, is to get to a target fast, right? And unwarned uh, and taking a lap around the earth uh, at a higher altitude that you would need to maintain an uh, orbital velocity like that for that period of time, uh, then you're making yourself much more exposed to our space surveillance systems. Um, not just the U.S., but a lot of private companies have got radars and telescopes looking up at things that are in orbit. So it doesn't, that doesn't all add up. Um, you know, as soon as the story came out, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I think some of the details might not be quite right on this, or people may have uh, connected dots that aren't connected. Now, if it's true that there is an object that was launched, it did go into orbit at least one or multiple times around the Earth. Uh, and then it re-entered uh, and landed somewhere, that sounds like a space plane right there. Um, if instead it's something that went up and then just went to a high altitude and then came screaming back in uh, at a very high velocity uh, and was not recovered, um, you know, and did not do a full orbit or anything like it, then that would 
say, okay, that's, that's some sort of hypersonic vehicle of some kind. Um, we just don't know enough to make a determination based on what has been revealed publicly. So this actually means that nobody really knows, right? I mean, was this a space plane? Was this a hypersonic missile? Well, I, I would say that, you know, in the general public, we don't really know yet. China certainly knows what it did or did not launch. <laughs> and, you know, the U.S. intelligence community may know more uh, than they're indicating. They may have also incorrectly assessed what it was. That sometimes happens, especially when you've got incomplete information and folks are, you know, prone to believe the worst out of China, given China's behavior. True. And then, you know, even if this report, well, it does have holes in it, it does bring up hypersonic weapon systems as an issue. Um, could you just take a moment and explain like what they are and, and how they actually work? Yeah, I mean, you know, the basics of it, hypersonic means something going faster than Mach 5. So when we're talking about hypersonic weapons, we're talking about weapons that travel at those high velocities. Now, to do that, um, you know, you need to be at a higher altitude in the very thin part uh, of the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, the advantage of hypersonic weapons is that they can reach their targets faster. They're harder for missile defense systems to intercept. Uh, and they can often, you know, sneak up on you uh, and, you know, evade some of your early warning and detection systems uh, just because of their, you know, the altitude they're traveling at and the speed that they're traveling at. Another key characteristic, uh, though, that, you know, when people often leave unsaid is when they mean hypersonic weapons, they, they really mean maneuverable hypersonic weapons because a ballistic missile, for example, a traditional ballistic missile um, will be traveling, you know, at a hypersonic velocity. Many of them do are going to travel greater than Mach 5, but that warhead has very limited maneuver capability, if any at all. When we're talking about hypersonic weapons, usually that means something that can continue to maneuver at that high velocity, which makes it hard to intercept and track. So who's actually developing them and why are they being developed? I mean, here in the U.S., my understanding is, is that DARPA, the U.S. Air Force, Navy, the Army, they're all seeming to be in, in some sort of program or another or together. What's the state of play with this? I mean, within the United States military, we've got multiple different projects across the military services and agencies like DARPA that are working on hypersonic weapons and hypersonic technology. We also know, of course, you know, Russia and China are both working on hypersonic weapons. And, and that's where it gets into an interesting situation of, you know, is there a hypersonics race? Is there a hypersonic gap? And, you know, I would argue that it's completely the wrong framework for looking at it. If Russia and China are developing hypersonic weapons, that means we need to develop systems to defend against those. That in itself does not mean that we need hypersonic weapons because, you know, hypersonic weapons don't fight other hypersonic weapons. <laughs> uh, so there's not a, a, you know, a, a natural symmetry here. Um, now, we may want hypersonic weapons for our own reasons, but we need to think carefully about, you know, what they would actually be used for, what types of missions, what types of strikes, 
Uh, and I think you know, when you go through that analysis, you know, you realize that yes, they could be very valuable to us, but for niche capabilities, right? These are we're not going to field hypersonic weapons in you know massive quantities uh, and use them the way that we use you know the JDAM, the GPS guided bombs today. It, that's not going to happen. That's not what they're useful for. But there are some specific you know scenarios and limited. Uh, mission sets where it would be very advantageous to have that capability. So I think we got to put it in the right perspective. And, and the reason that we need hypersonic weapons is not because others have them, right? The others having hypersonic weapons is the reason we need defenses against hypersonic weapons. And how are those defenses um, with hypersonic weapons? I mean, do we actually have any? I mean, we have a missile defense system that that looks north and that is geared mm-hmm. towards, uh, you know, ICBMs, and and even then, you know, reports are that, you know, out of the last six tests, I I believe that the United States um, uh, failed three times, and it's only uh, been a test of a of a single sort of incoming warhead. Um, there seems to be quite a few problems in in general with defending against incoming things, whether they be ICBMs or hypersonics. Well, yeah, you know, the old adage, missile defense is hard because it's like hitting a bullet with a bullet. Um, you know, it, it's even harder for hypersonic uh, weapons because you're trying to hit a maneuverable bullet with a bullet. Uh, and so, yeah, that, it does make it even more challenging. And we already have enough challenges as it is when it comes to ballistic missile defense. But you know, the systems we have today are, are not sufficient uh, to meet the hypersonic threat. Um, and there's multiple layers of that. First and foremost, we've got to have better, um, you know, missile warning and tracking sensing systems that can, you know, not only pick these things up from the moment they're launched, but track them throughout the entirety of their trajectory. Because they're maneuverable, uh, you know, you can't just rely on their ballistic trajectory to figure out where they're going and where they're going to be. Uh, you've got to maintain really a chain of custody uh, over that missile throughout all phases of flight. And then we've got to have interceptors that are positioned and have the speed and the range in order to make those intercepts. Now, you know, I think that if we had the right sensing and tracking systems, we could adapt some of our existing interceptors, but we may also need some new uh, intercept capabilities as well to really counter the hypersonic threat. And keep in mind, so far, our, our missile defense systems, you know, we've really divided them into two groups, theater missile defense, which is really geared towards shorter range ballistic missiles, but in limited volumes, and uh, national missile defense, which is geared toward longer range missiles that can reach the continental United States, uh, but in very small numbers. And so, you know, we really are not sized or positioned for this type of hypersonic missile threat that we're beginning to face. Is the technology there? Is this a technological challenge or, or is this a budgetary challenge? What are the challenges to, to actually developing a defense? It's all of the above. It's, it, there are technological challenges. Uh, you know, they're not insurmountable by any means, but there's work that has to be done there. Uh, but there are a lot of budget challenges too. You know, how do we afford to field a, a 
more resilient, more capable missile sensing tracking layer of satellites and you know, ground and ship-based radar systems? How do we afford to field all of that while continuing to upgrade and modernize all of the missile defense and missile warning systems that we have today? You know, in what looks like is a, a relatively flat budget environment uh, for the coming years. So, yeah, it, it's a lot of challenges at once, and you've got to rack and stack that relative to other priorities across the defense enterprise. There's another aspect to this that I, I find that could be a concern, and that's about the norms of space behavior. And the norms of space behavior aren't just up in orbit but are things that actually happen here on the ground. And I'm wondering aloud, perhaps, that perhaps if China had been a bit more transparent about you know, what they were doing in July or what they were doing in August, that the intensity that is surrounding this particular mystery would not be so intense. It would be interesting, perhaps worrying, but maybe not as intense as it is now if there was a bit more of a normalizing of behavior and normalizing of testing of these types of mm -hmm. systems, whether they be a space plane or a weapon. What do you think? Yeah, so, you know, the question of norms in space is really, a, you know, a, a great one. It's something that, you know, the Space Force and uh, space policy personnel and the State Department are, are really grappling with right now. The fact of the matter is that there's no prohibition, you know, on putting conventional weapons in space, whether you're you know, using them to attack other things in space or using them to attack targets on earth or whatever purposes, uh, it's not prohibited, you know, in the outer space treaty or any of our other international agreements that kind of govern what's, what happens in space. And, and so what do we want the norms to be is the first question. Do we want these things to be prohibited? Are we ready to sign up to that? Because that means that, you know, we wouldn't be doing them either. Uh, and I, I think for the most part, we would be, you know, space to earth weapons, something that's based in space and has effects on the earth. There's not a lot of military advantage to be had from that, at least not right now. And so I think we ought to be willing to agree uh, to limit those things. But do other countries see it the same way? Uh, you know, it's not clear that they do. And then, of course, it all comes down to the key question of, well, how do you define what a weapon is, <laughs> right? Do you only include things that have kinetic effects? Do you include things that you know have non-kinetic effects? You know, such as a space-based jammer that could just jam signals on the Earth. You know, do you include something uh, like an on-orbit servicing vehicle that could be used for perfectly benign purposes? You know, to service a satellite, to move it or repair it, uh, but could also be used, you know, in an uncooperative. Uh, situation where it docks with a satellite and uh, that it's not supposed to and disables that satellite. You know, even things like systems that are being tested to clean up orbital debris, many of those same systems could be used to attack someone's satellite. And what about hypersonics? Is there a place or a, or a path forward in diplomacy to, you know, taking some of uh, the tension that even this report has created, whether this report is true or not. I mean, the tension is real. There's several ways. So on the one hand, I would say to China that if this was really some sort of a, you know, civil or commercial test mission of a reusable space plane, by all means, show us what you're doing, be more transparent, 
announce your launches in advance, announce the payloads, release the information about it. NASA tests things like that all the time. Uh, you know, the United States Space Force has a reusable space plane, the X-37. They announce the launch, they announce landings, they do it after the fact, they do keep parts of the mission secret, but they let people know that, hey, this is what we're doing at, at the most basic level. So, you know, China, if they've done nothing bad here, then be more transparent, you know, give people more insight, especially into your civil and commercial space programs. Well, that was certainly informative. Thank you, Todd, for giving me some of your time. Uh, thank you. Glad to, glad to continue the discussion. That's it for this week. Be sure to come back next week for the latest in space, business, and defense. Before I go, I'd like to thank Vago Maradian, the Defense and Aerospace Reports Editor, for bringing space into his media family, and Chris Cervello, who is the producer for all of the Deaf Aero Report podcasts. You can subscribe to the downlink on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Or you can sign up for my weekly newsletter on Substack, which carries the podcast as well. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.